This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Here's our own Jim Jeffrey Show weatherman. The forecast is we're all going to die and there'll be no one left to remember our story. A best of Radio EcoShock replay. The latest models of Earth's future reveal a terrible truth. French researchers at the top national research agency now say the path of this civilization could lead to a catastrophic warming of 7 degrees centigrade by the year 2100. This is devastating news. Previously, scientists suggested the limits of humanity begin at 4 degrees C. So now we know the stakes. It is literally change or die. The Earth will warm in this decade for sure, and in coming decades, we will experience more floods, fires, extreme heat waves, crop damage, storms more severe than before, insect invasion, species loss, changes in plants, everything. But there is still time, these scientists find, to avoid the very worst, to rebel against extinction. We are lucky to be joined by the senior researcher for the French team that last week released the results of the very latest generation of climate models. Radio EcoShock. Dr. Olivier Boucher is senior research scientist at the Centre National de la Recherche Scientifique, the French National Centre for Scientific Research, the largest science agency in France, Olivier is head of the Institut Pierre-Simon Laplace Climate Modeling Centre in Paris, part of the French group releasing the new results. Olivier Boucher, welcome to Radio Ecoshock. Hello. Can we assume 7 degrees C warming by 2100 is the worst-case scenario provided by the new generation of climate models? So we have a new generation of models, which we have used for a broad range of scenarios from the most optimistic to uh, the most pessimistic and then we get uh, yeah, a range of temperature change by the end of the century relative to pre-industrial time which is anywhere between two and seven so seven is indeed the most pessimistic outcome but i wouldn't say it's sort of any likely outcome i mean it's really uh, the worst you can imagine with a, a scenario that is also very extreme in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So if we continue with our present emissions, which are still rising, and we don't do anything about it really, then could we presume that is where we would be heading, 7 degrees C warming? No. First of all, uh, you're correct that uh, greenhouse gas emissions keep rising. They haven't leveled off yet. Uh, but nevertheless, we have started to do something. And as you know, there is a Paris Agreement. There is a number of pledges from the countries. We know they're insufficient. We know we need to do more. We need to do it more quickly. But there is a range of initiatives, so not just government, but societies, cities, regions. So we are uh, on track to, to something that is less than seven. It's, it's difficult to estimate, of course, uh, because some of the pledges uh, in the Paris Agreement are a little bit vague, it's not clear, but I think UNFCCC assumes that or estimates that the current pledges and the sort of continued effort at, at the level where it is now in terms of mitigation would take us to maybe 3.5, 4 degree uh, warming by the end of the century, which is still too much. So we, we need to do more mitigation, uh, more reduction of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. 
Why are these results worse than previous forecasts by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Okay, we can only speak for, for the two models, the two French models which have been presented uh, this week. And uh, if you want a full comparison to the IPCC result from, from CINI-5, of course, we will have to wait for uh, the full range of models. It's about 20 models or maybe yeah, 20 modeling groups, maybe 30 models around the, around the world. So it's a bit too early to say. But for our model, the uh, temperature increased a little bit more than it was in the previous uh, version of the model. And for the second model, the one from Meteo France, the French uh, weather service, it's, uh, it's significantly more warming. It's, it's a little bit less than in our model, but it, it, it is significantly more. The reason for this, we, we started to, to investigate. Uh, as you know, the, there is a number of uh, feedback in the climate system. If we, we do perturb uh, the climate system with uh, increasing uh, greenhouse gases, so that leads to a warming, and there, are, there is a number of feedback that actually amplify or dampen uh, this initial warming. And in our model, what we observe is uh, the water vapor feedback that is a little bit stronger in the new model as compared to the previous one. So basically, the, the process is uh, in a warmer climate, uh, there's also more humidity, and water vapor in the atmosphere is actually a greenhouse gas itself, so that induces a bit more greenhouse effect and a bit more warming. So that's, that's the reason we observe. I've long thought that large or local regional events like the Russian heat wave of 2010 or the Indonesian peat fires of 1997-98 could stimulate the process of global warming, but the models more or less have to leave them out. Do the new models include so-called local phenomenon, like hurricanes even? So, yeah, of course, there's a range of local phenomena, and uh, the current generation of model doesn't, doesn't include uh, the full range of uh, such phenomena. So you mentioned tropical cyclones. Uh, at the moment, we do not simulate tropical cyclone in this uh, climate models because a uh, tropical cyclone is a, a relatively small size, small scale process. So we can have some sort of uh, a little bit of an embryon of, of uh, tropical cyclone, but it's not fully resolved by the models. So you need further, we call that downscaling. You need, you need a, a more regional model to, to better simulate a tropical cyclone. And that's what Metaphone did uh, in the, uh, with the, with the uh, modeling system. For, you also mentioned heat waves. Heat wave is something that is reasonably well uh, simulated by the model because it's a relatively large-scale uh, phenomenon. So we can indeed simulate heat waves, and we do observe an increase uh, in heat wave frequency and heat wave intensity in the model uh, of, um, I would say, most of the continental areas. We want computer models to duplicate the key operations of the planet, and they're pretty complex. But in reality, we are changing those processes even as we study them, and, and perhaps faster than we can study them. Perhaps we haven't included things like we've changed the rate of permafrost thaw, and so things start to move faster than we thought. So how can we uh, try and approach a moving target with climate models? Yes, you're right that uh, models are imperfect tools. Uh, they're, they're far from perfect. They, they, they have a lot of uh, qualities. I mean, we, we observe that they reproduce a lot of the, uh, the, the observed climate, but they are tools. They are uh, limited, uh, and, and there are a number of things uh, that, are not that are not represented in these models. So you, you, you mentioned permafrost. That's correct. Permafrost can melt. It's, it's already melting, and that can 
emit more, more CO2 and more methane in the atmosphere. So there is a whole scientific debate to know how big that additional feedback might be. And indeed, uh, it's not included in these climate models yet. Um, so usually we, we try to include it in, in sort of a, in, in the post analysis of our, of, of our climate modeling. So uh, the IPCC will still try to include uh, this, this potential feedback into uh, their estimate of carbon budgets, which is basically how much carbon emissions, how much CO2 emissions uh, are left for a given target, like for the two degree target. So what we do, we do our best. I mean, we keep in, improving the models, but yeah, we recognize that there's still a number of processes that uh, are not represented or not well enough represented. But models remain uh, a sort of uh, the best tool or the only tool, I would say, to really investigate the future. And the other great enigma is the future of clouds in a hotter world. Do the new CMIP6 models assume changes in cloud formation as the Earth warms? Uh, again, I can only speak for, for our model. I mean, we haven't looked yet at the, at the other CMIP6 models. Uh, we do not, we, we've improved the representation of clouds quite a bit in our model in terms of physics. So we're working on the, phys- on the, clou- on the cloud physics. So we think we have a better representation of clouds. And we can see that when we compare the current climate with uh, observations, which have, we have a much better representation of different cloud regimes in different regions of the world. We, this hasn't turned into a very different cloud feedback. So, the, so clouds do change uh, uh, in the future, and they're responsible for both negative and positive feedback. But in our model, at least, that hasn't really changed the, the, the overall cloud feedback from the previous generation to, to this one. And when the models portray a possible future 7 degrees hotter as a global mean, what is the baseline used? Is that 7 degrees C above the year 2000 or above 1880 or what? Yeah, that's a good question because here we reported the changes relative to pre-industrial, whereas the the previous IPCC has provided range relative to present day, which I think at the time of the last report was something like 1981-2010, so a 30-year period. Uh, around the present day, uh, whereas here we report uh, the changes relative to uh, pre-industrial because now we have the Paris Agreement, it sort of sets target relative to pre-industrial, so we thought that's, that's a better uh, measure of where we're heading. Uh, but again, I want to stress that we have a full range uh, of scenarios, and, and seven degree is one end, but the other end is we, 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 still, we still have scenarios that are close to two degrees. So so the, the future is still quite open. It really depends on uh, what uh, emission trajectory will be on, and uh, trajectories that uh, reduce emissions right away to a substantial uh, amount on, uh, to, in order to achieve neutrality by 2060 or 2080 at the, uh, at the planetary scale. These can put us on a two-degree pathway, more or less. So for, for some time, we'll, we'll have additional warming. Uh, I mean, until 2040, whatever we do, we should expect more warming. But for the, the sort of second half of the century, it truly depends on uh, emissions as, we, as they change now. Do you expect other countries to duplicate your results on the climate sensitivity? And why do you think France is leading in this? Yeah, we've been uh, quite early in the, in the CIMIP-6 process because we, ha- we, we had a very strong engineering team, so we were able to 
start the simulations quite early on, but also to have all the quality control of the data and the publication process that was streamlined so we could we could publish the data on the, uh, the uh, on the internet on the web quite rapidly after the simulations. So a number of, of uh, uh, models uh, will will follow. I mean, there is now uh, maybe ten models which are available at least in part. I mean, our, our models have published far more data than, than the other models. But yes, it's it, it's following, and there will be hopefully uh, more and more data so we can really put our models in context of the of the other models. We really need an ensemble of models to appreciate what's uh, robust in the model results, where we think the models are correct because they all say the same thing, and where there are more uncertainties. The model disagree, so uh, we have less, there's more uncertainty, we have less confidence in what the models say. Olivier, I would like to explore one of your other specialties, the role of particles in the air, the aerosols. Is there better handling of aerosols in Earth system models? Is that a factor in the newly released results that you have put out this week? No, I don't, I don't really think so. Um, aerosols are important. I mean, they, they, they're cooling the Earth system, and they, they've cooled the Earth system to some extent during the 20, 20th century. For about two decades, there's been a shift in aerosol concentrations from uh, North America and Europe to to Asia. So there's, there's less aerosols over this of a, of a developed world, more aerosols of a de- developing world. Uh, but altogether, the cooling effect hasn't really changed over the sort of last two or three decades. Uh, and into the future, there will be more and more air quality policies. We, we, we start to see air quality policies in, in China, for instance. So uh, by I would say 2040, uh, we expect the, the concentration of aerosols from anthropogenic emissions, right, from pollution, to decrease. So, uh, and that was already the case uh, in, in, the, in the previous set of scenarios. So that doesn't really have an impact on the end of century. Uh, the end of century really depends on, on the, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions. I understand, but there is a debate about how much heat aerosols are covering up. That is, if aerosol pollution was cleaned up to its pre-industrial state, but with the greenhouse gases we have up there now, how much higher would the global mean temperature be? Would it be half a degree, a degree, less, more? Yes, that's, that's you're correct. Uh, aerosols have masked part of the uh, anthropogenic warming from greenhouse gases so far. Uh, unfortunately, it's very difficult to assess. I mean, greenhouse gases are easy. It's just sort of well mixed. You can measure them to good accuracy. Uh, we know the uh, relative transfer in the atmosphere. We know how, uh, how to compute the, the relative perturbation. For aerosols, it's much more complicated. They vary all the time. They, mar- they vary in space. They vary in time. Uh, they have complex uh, optical properties, chemical properties, physical properties. So it's very difficult to estimate the, the uh, relative effect. And, and in that respect, we haven't made a huge progress. We still think it's somewhere between half a watt to a watt or maybe more. So uh, if we were to clean up uh, anthropogenic emissions of aerosols or, or the uh, gas-based precursors, then... Okay, it would heat up anywhere between a few tenths of a degree, Celsius degree, of course, uh, uh, or uh, on, on one degree. But that's, that's hard to say. I mean, uh, there's nothing more to offer than, than uh, a range. All right. And if almost all aerosol pollution develops in the northern hemisphere, as it does, is the masking of heat energy greater there compared to the southern hemisphere? Can it be localized? 
Um, it's a bit more tricky. Of course, you expect a local effect. I mean, if they are resolved, then they, they modify the amount of uh, solar radiation reaching the surface, so, so that has an effect. But uh, there is also the climate system also sort of, uh, there's a lot of mixing in the atmosphere, including uh, sort of energy mixing, if you want. So you don't expect just a local response. You, you expect both a hemispheric response and also a global response. And it's true that there is a lot more anthropogenic aerosols in the northern hemisphere, uh, but aerosols also modify clouds, and this is a highly nonlinear effect, which is, it sort of saturates uh, uh, quickly. So even uh, less uh, emission of aerosols in the southern hemisphere can still modify the clouds substantially. So even the balance between southern hemisphere and northern hemisphere in terms of the aerosol impact, we don't quite know. Suppose an economic crash or some other factor brought industrial society to a standstill, even for a month or two. How long would it take for aerosols to disappear from the atmosphere, leading to a possible jump in warming? Okay, the aerosols would disappear pretty quickly, uh, about a week. That's roughly the lifetime in the atmosphere. After a, week, after a few days, after a week, they, get, uh, they either deposit at the surface or they get washed out by, by rain. So you could say a week to two weeks in dry regions, maybe. Uh, but the warming, the extra warming that you would expect from that would take a, a longer time to materialize. And that's because the, the climate system is a bit slow to respond, because, essentially because there is an ocean. So, so the ocean has a bit, is a sort of a big buffer in, in terms of, of energy. So it would still take a, a few decades for that extra warming to, to materialize. In the past two months in the news, we saw large wildfires in Siberia, Alaska, famously in the Amazon, but also in Angola, and now smoking choke from fires in Indonesia. And these fires, they emit a lot of carbon, of course, as the wood releases the carbon, but they also release clouds of aerosols. Do we know the climate effect of recurring world fires, and is that included in the new models? Uh, I would say indirect, it's indirectly included in the model. You're right uh, that they, they emit a lot of aerosols, but these are smoke aerosols, which means uh, these aerosols are, are not only scattering solar radiation, but they're also absorbing solar radiation. So on balance, they don't have uh, much of a climate effect. It's a, it's a, it's a bit of a uh, tug of war between the cooling and the warming effect, and altogether it's probably a relatively small effect. Then, you're right, they also emit CO2. Uh, as long as the fires balance sort of, uh, biomass growth from photosynthesis, I would say it doesn't really affect the CO2, uh, uh, the carbon cycle. But I think what is more worrying is when the fires are just the, the consequences of deforestation. And that deforestation is a, is a, is a clear loss uh, of carbon from the vegetation into the atmosphere. And that contribute to increase uh, the CO2 concentration. And, and just to give you an idea, uh, about one-fourth one of uh, global CO2 emissions are due to deforestation and land-use changes, and three-quarters are from fossil fuels. So this is, it is a substantial amount, and fires contribute to that. But I would say uh, fires in the Amazon, in, in, in Africa, in Indonesia, or even in Siberia, to some extent, I mean, they, they occur every year. Some of it is natural, some of it is is due to human activities, but it's, it's, it's more a problem when it's uh, a consequence of deforestation. 
Well, if the climate becomes even more destabilized, humans will be desperate for cooling solutions. I noticed in March 2019 you presented a seminar called Solar Radiation Management Global or Regional. And I wonder, can we try to mount solar radiation just over the Arctic, say to preserve the last of the sea ice or slow down permafrost thaw? Or or do the atmospheric currents take whatever we put up there and spread them much farther? Right. Um, so solar radiation management is, is, a, is a pretty broad term uh, that refers to, to a range of techniques uh, in order to cool the, the Earth artificially. So, so one option is the stratospheric aerosol. So we basically inject uh, sulfur in the stratosphere in the, in the higher part of the, of the atmosphere. It's not that we do it. It's, it's just we do it on paper. Uh, and, that, and, and by doing so, you, you sort of reflecting a, a higher amount of radiation back to space. This clearly will achieve a global cooling. It's, you cannot really uh, achieve a regional cooling with that because the, uh, basically the stratosphere, the, the, the atmospheric circulation in the stratosphere will redistribute you, you, the aerosol, any aerosol that you, you may put there. So you would just achieve global cooling. Uh, okay, it's got all sorts of problems, but we think uh, it's, it, it, just in terms of the climate physics, uh, it, it can work. I'm not saying we should do it, but uh, technically uh, it's something that could work. Uh, if you want just to cool the Arctic, then that's, that's very much, uh, that's not easy. That's, that's quite difficult. And you have to think of other te- techniques. And people have been talking about marine cloud brightening, which is much well proven in terms of climate physics. And also, probably not so easy to achieve. And then the Arctic, I mean, half of the year is in the dark. So yeah, making clouds more more reflective wouldn't help if there is no solar radiation to start with. Um, so targeting regional cooling is, I would say, much more difficult. One of the fears about geoengineering, like injecting particles into the stratosphere, is creating inadvertent changes to rainfall. Is that a legitimate concern? This is a legitimate concern, of course. Uh, if we inject uh, aerosols in the stratosphere, this will have a cooling effect, but this is not a constellation of global warming uh, in any case. I mean, the processes are different, the greenhouse, greenhouse effect and the cooling from aerosols are two different things. So there would still be some resulting changes in atmospheric circulation, in, in uh, precipitation regimes, so there would be some regions with less precipitation. We know that essentially from climate modeling. I mean, we do numerical experiments that, that show that. So it's a, it is a legitimate concern. But then the question is, what do you compare to? I mean, if you compare to uh, a pre-industrial, yes, it, there will be some changes in pre- precipitation. If you compare to a, a much uh, warmer uh, climate, uh, like we could be heading to, I mean, it's still... An, we still undecided, but that's still an option, uh, then you, you may still be better off uh, with uh, solar radiation management. But, as you said, there is a, there is a whole lot of other problems uh, in terms of how long you have to sustain it. You would have to sustain it for, like, centuries, probably, uh, and there is no guarantee that you can do that. Uh, it may also affect the ozone hole. Uh, it, so there's a whole range of consequences that uh, could also happen. Well, if humans don't get our act together and we keep on with a carbon-based civilization, is it possible that civilization would not survive without geoengineering? Um, well, I think that even in a very warm climate, civilization would survive 
he would badly survive, but he would survive. There would be all sorts of of conflicts and uh, migration and so on. But I don't think it's the end of civilization. That's that's the first uh, remark. Uh, but if if ever, and I don't, again, I don't think this is uh, uh, the, the most likely outcome. I think it's a pretty unlikely outcome, actually. If we're really heading to five or six degrees because we've done absolutely nothing uh, until 2080, then uh, I'm pretty sure that the temptation to use uh, solar radiation management techniques would be very high indeed. Yes, because I think some people will just focus on the very high end that you have presented and, and think, well, this is a model of doom. Uh, there's nothing we can do. But you've presented there, there is a range of things that we could still do to avoid that. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, the future is quite open, and we've got scenarios from 2 degree to 7 degree. Uh, the, the, the objective of scenarios is really to investigate, to span the possible range of futures, to look at all of them. And, and they basically show that yeah, global warming for another two decades is sort of unavoidable. I mean, we'll have to adapt to uh, uh, some more global warming. But after 2040, it really depends on the scenario. It really depends on what, what we do now. Are you personally worried about the future? I tend to be optimistic, but that's just my sort of personal uh, way of, of being. Uh, but of course, there is something frightening in, in the climate projections that we, we can make. We know it's going to affect people, and we know it's going to affect vulnerable people more than rich people. Uh, so there is really a, a question here, you know, how, how we do mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions. As we finish up here, Olivier, is there anything else that you would like to talk to us about? Well, no, I think, I think we had a very comprehensive uh, interview and yeah, very good question. Uh, I can see you know the subject very well, so this is uh, quite interesting. All right. From France, we've been speaking with Dr. Olivier Boucher, Senior Research Scientist at the French National Center for Scientific Research, or CNSR. You can find more links in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Olivier, thank you for finding the time to talk with us on Radio Ecoshock. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith reporting. Check out the Radio Ecoshock website. We're at ecoshock.org. So much to learn from that interview with a leading scientist in France. For one thing, it sounds like we can worry less about aerosols settling out of the sky causing an immediate jump in warming. Olivier Boucher says there would not be a sudden leap because any warming unmasked would unfold over decades due to the large buffer we have in the oceans. Still, I'm going to follow this global dimming story in part because that warming, somewhere between half a degree and one degree C, is not counted when experts predict how hot the planet will get. But it is there. And we know that even a half a degree warming can make a significant difference. As the recent report from the IPCC showed, when assessing the difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees C of warming. I have another interview on aerosol masking of global warming coming up soon. From the Boucher interview, we also learn the IPCC is switching away from the somewhat fake starting point of warming since 2010 to true pre-industrial warming, like what the air is thought to have been in 1750. We can't lie to ourselves by moving the benchmark closer to the present. 
Also, despite the blaring headlines, we are not predetermined or doomed to heat up 7 degrees C by the year 2100. To get to that certain extinction point, humanity would have to ignore all the climate-driven disasters that developed during the next decades, to drop everything about the Paris Climate Accords of 2015, to ignore the dropping price of renewable energy. In short, we would have to actively do everything possible to commit climate suicide. You may think, bleakly enough to accept, that is our fate. But vast crowds of humans turned out just last Friday, saying they do want a future. We will go through hard, terrible times as the climate shifts. But there is still time to rebel against extinction. Find that growing global movement at rebellion.earth. The next international rebellion is set for October 7th. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Sea level rise is baked into the cake now. Greenland and Antarctica are melting, as are all other land glaciers. We are committed to a world where ports and port cities become swamped, Delta farmlands become invaded by salty water, and maps of the coastlines have to be updated every 10 years or less. Will we wait until the next storm surge wipes out homes and infrastructure? Will we dumbly try to rebuild everything while pretending sea level rise is not real? Will we wait to panic or plan a retreat that makes sense? Coming up, the first in a two-part series called Retreat from the Sea. From Staten Island to Papua New Guinea and now in the Bahamas, climate change forces people to retreat from the storm-tossed rising sea. Retreat means defeat. Or does it? It turns out planned retreat is an emerging field of study, policy, and current events. We are joined by a known expert in the field, Dr. A.R. Siders. She has a law degree from Harvard University and a doctorate from Stanford. Ann Siders worked on recovery in New York and New Jersey after Hurricane Sandy in 2012. She just joined the faculty at the University of Delaware, working with the Disaster Research Center. Her latest paper, published in the journal Science, is The Case for Strategic and Managed Climate Retreat, Why, Where, When, and How Should Communities Relocate? Dr. Siders, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. When Hurricane Sandy wiped out communities in Staten Island, residents organized buyout groups, but politicians from New York, like State Senator Chuck Schumer and then Mayor Michael Bloomberg, were against it. Schumer said the drive to rebuild on those exposed shorelines shows the spirit of New York. What ultimately happened for those Staten Islanders wanting to retreat? There was initially some resistance to the idea of retreat, especially in a city like New York, where they have a housing crisis, particularly an affordable housing crisis. And the concern was that if you lose hundreds of homes from Staten Island, where else are you going to find hundreds of homes to replace them, especially single-family affordable homes? So initially, there was some resistance against this, but then the community members themselves, especially within Oakwood Beach, learned about the potential to retreat from their neighborhood uh, and to do this through a federal program from the Federal Emergency Management Agency through FEMA. 
So they organized and they approached the state government and found support from the state government for this program. So then the state and city uh, had a discussion about where and how extensive the retreat effort would be and eventually ended up relocating several hundred properties on Staten Island and throughout New York City. Why did people living in Kivalina, Alaska, need to relocate? Kivalina is a small community on the northern and western coast of Alaska. It's very exposed to sea level rise and also to coastal erosion. Uh, it's very windswept. Because of there's so much erosion, buildings are becoming unstable, and it's a very can be a very dangerous place to live. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers actually went in and did a study with a number of Alaska Native villages in Alaska, determined that because of permafrost melting, coastal erosion, and other threats, these buildings are no longer safe or stable, and the community is losing so much land that they need to relocate somewhere else in order to be viable in the long term. So you participated in the case against ExxonMobil launched by the residents of Kivalina. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, I, I was not involved in that case. Um, I know about it from an academic standpoint. The residents of Kivalina were trying to say that oil companies are the people who are putting fossil fuels into the atmosphere. They're the ones who are creating climate change and the greatest harm. So perhaps they should have a liability to pay for the damages that are occurring such as coastal erosion and sea level rise. The case, however, was dismissed because the court found that you couldn't find a direct connection between an individual company like ExxonMobil doing its job, getting fuel and energy for people doing the things that are perfectly legal in the United States, and a specific outcome such as an individual community experiencing coastal erosion and sea loss. It's one of the big challenges with climate change that everybody's actions are contributing to it, and these companies are contributing significantly, but you can't tie particular business actions to particular outcomes. And so the law has trouble dealing with something on the scale of climate change. It's my understanding the Ninth Circuit of the U.S. Court of Appeals did not make a ruling about the merits of claiming big oil conspired to mislead the public about the dangers of climate change. So... I guess that one is still legally out there. That is my understanding. I have not seen any cases on this, um, but it's also not an area I have actively researched, so I could be overlooking something. So oftentimes, a court can dismiss a case based on the idea of standing, the sort of initial hurdles you have to get through before the court makes a finding. And in this case, they did not reach that finding. So when it comes to retreat, I also worry there's big opposition coming from billionaire real estate developers and the politicians they support. And then Wall Street and the banks count on that high real estate value, too, as, as part of their collateral. Do you think there is a conspiracy of silence about the real dangers of coastal development? I think that the incentives are definitely aligned for people not to want to know about the risk and not to want to admit that their actions in building in risky areas like on the coast or in the wildlife urban interface create risk and put people at risk. When developers or real estate agents come in, they earn their money and they're gone again very quickly. It's the people who live there who have to deal with the consequences 20 years down the road. You know, I worry about Bangladesh. They have the largest single population exposed to massive flooding as the sea levels rise and the storms get bigger. Have you heard about the peninsula principles that came out of Bangladesh on, on how they're going to handle internal migration? I have not. What are those? Okay. Well, I'll send you a link to that because th that's some pretty hot stuff. It was developed in 2015, and 
Basically, Bangladesh came up with some rules on how they were going to handle people who had to be moved out because they have such low-lying delta areas that the seas are just invading there. So, something to look up, and I'm also going to be looking up the case in Panama that I hadn't heard about at all in, in a place called Guniala, where they also uh, had to withdraw. It's, it's happening all over. Now, you wrote in your new paper in Science, along with your co-authors, of course, quote, even in areas experiencing overall growth, some people are retreating, such as in Manila, Nairobi, and New York City. Uh, do you know what happened with retreat in Manila or Nairobi? So, Dr. Jola Ajibad, I might be mispronouncing her name, um, has actually just published a paper. She's at Portland State University. She's just published a paper that's come out doing a comparative case on relocation in Nairobi and Manila. And she looks at how communities are being relocated away from at-risk places and how those same cities are also developing new developments and trying to grow economically. So she describes a case uh, in Nairobi of how low-income residents, uh, informal settlements, are being displaced, sometimes forcibly evicted from places where they've been living. And this is seen as a resilience measure because these people need to be made safe by moving them. But then she also describes how the city is investing in major new developments in very similar at-risk places. But because it's for the wealthy, it's seen as economic development and it's somehow not seen as a risk. And so there's this huge inequity in terms of how we treat people differently based purely on their income level. Let's talk about the negative reaction to the word retreat. How do people react, and can we redefine retreat in a better way? Retreat can be very difficult. People immediately see it as we're losing that battle. And one of my favorite quotes on this comes from U.S. Marine Corps General Oliver Smith. He gave this phrase, he says, retreat, hell, we're just advancing in a new direction. And I love this idea because it's very kind of ridiculously oorah Marine Corps, but it's also very insightful that retreat doesn't mean you're losing. Sometimes retreat means you're choosing your battles. You're choosing not to fight here, but to take a step back, take stock, and move forward in a new direction. And that's exactly what we're doing with managed retreat. Sometimes it means we're just picking this battle. Right now, we're fighting all over the world to hold the ocean in place. And that might not be the best battle for us to fight. Uh, it might even be ridiculous for us to con continue thinking about the our relationship with the ocean as a battle and a war. We need to stop seeing it as a fight. In terms of relabeling it, it's kind of a consistent joke within the managed retreat field, but it's also true that there's going to be a great prize for whoever can figure out the right phrasing for a better word. People try all kinds of synonyms. People talk about unbuilding or undevelopment, about relocation, resettlement, renewal. One of my favorites was aggressive resilience uh, for moving people back. The problem is that all of these terms come with their own history. Resettlement in the United States has a particular history, especially if you're talking about Native American tribes. Renewal can talk about, can sound like urban renewal, which also has a history of inequity and social injustice. So finding a word that has some of the same meaning but no negative connotations is incredibly difficult. And believe me, we're all trying to find a better word there. In a 2016 article in the journal Public Culture, Liz Kozlov adds a broader definition. She writes, quote, Retreat is distinct from other kinds of climate-related migration 
in that it entails not just relocating a group of people, but also unbuilding land and returning it to nature in perpetuity, end quote. So there is more to it than just letting the sea take over the ruins. Yeah, there certainly is. And this is an important distinction, particularly in the United States. So there are multiple federal programs that will come in after a disaster and might offer to buy a homeowner's house if it's been damaged by floods or storms or other hazards. And some of those programs will return the land, will unbuild the building, and they will return the land to natural space and to public space. And some of those programs will turn around and redevelop the land and sell it to another developer and put other people at risk in that same location. So distinguishing between those two programs, both of which are sometimes sold as, you you both hear them described as floodplain acquisition or floodplain retreat, they actually have really distinct differences. And so Liskoslov is very right that the unbuilding and returning to open space is an important element of planned retreat. Well, and if you take some of those coastal areas and, and let them grow into natural habitat that can absorb some of the sea, you actually improve the situation for the people living further back. Absolutely. When you have more green land, it can act like a sponge and it can soak up the flood water that would otherwise rush in and damage other people's homes. There are all kinds of other ways people are using these lands, too. You can restore it as a wetland, so it soaks up more water. You could have it as a public park. Uh, there are cities around the United States that have done this managed retreat process, and now they have soccer fields or running trails or you know, tennis courts that can soak up this water. Other places are doing community gardens. Uh, we see some efforts now in Houston where the Nature Conservancy in Houston are taking lands that have gone through managed retreat, and they're actually using them to create what they're calling pocket prairies. So it's habitat for endangered species on these lands. So it helps people against floods, but it can serve all kinds of other benefits as well if it's managed in the right way. Now, looking to current events, nobody's had enough time to start counting how many people really died in the recent devastation on those two Bahamian islands during Hurricane Dorian. But the aerial photos make it clear that homes for tens of thousands of people were entirely demolished. Should those places be resettled? What do you picture happening there? The challenge in the Bahamas and many island nations is extreme. In the United States, we're fortunate that we have a lot of space. People can move two miles from the ocean, still have access to the ocean, but be safer. Or you know, the very extreme, we have space in the Midwest and other places that's safe. The challenge in a place like the Bahamas is that there isn't that kind of space. So the difficulty is going to be finding places that are safer within the Bahamas. Should we rebuild homes in places where we know people will be put at risk? Not without serious consideration and not without doing something to make sure that they're safer the next time. Not everywhere that is at risk needs to retreat, but it needs to be one of the options that's available to them. And that's what I hope will be happening in the Bahamas, is that some communities will rebuild, and they will rebuild in a different way that makes them more resilient to future hurricanes. But some communities will choose not to rebuild, or it just won't be possible to rebuild in that place in a safe way. And I hope that those communities are going to receive support so that they can retreat in a managed way, not ad hoc, not without help but with support and with a plan to make sure that they're safer in the long term. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. My guest is Dr. A.R. Siders from the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware. We're talking about planned retreat from places made unlivable by climate change. 
I think some of your work might finally find some application and funding if the international community gets its act together so that the wealthy nations step up and help to pay the victims of our fossil fuel burning. Do you see that coming down the pipe? Mm, that's a difficult question. Uh, negotiations are always ongoing. I think the effects of climate change are becoming more apparent, and people are realizing that the need for these funds is more real. I will say, however, that I am doubtful that the money will be released in the time and in the amounts that are needed in order to take action. It doesn't do us any good if you know, we get a few million dollars 10 years from now. People need large sums of money, and they need them now so they can start planning for these effects that are happening. That's going to be the challenge. And you raised the issue of the social equity challenge, and I'm told that some of the residents of that poor community destroyed in Abaco Island, Bahamas, were refugees from the collapse of Haiti's economy. So those survivors will be refugees twice. The wealthy have the resources to move somewhere else while the poorest people are left at the highest risk. How do we handle that? That's exactly right. And actually, that's one of the arguments that my co-authors and I make in the paper in Science is this idea that if we don't have a managed retreat policy, every time someone stands up and says, we won't retreat, you know, we're going to rebuild, there are people who want to leave. And the people who have the resources are able to leave, even if there's no government program. But if there's no government program, then some people will be stuck. They won't have the resources, they won't have the option, and they can become trapped. Uh, the literature talks about trapped populations, which people are stuck in these at-risk areas without the resources to leave. We see this happening internationally. Um, after major disasters, some people leave. They usually tend to be people who have resources or connections elsewhere. We also see it in the United States. Uh, we see the people who are able to walk away from their homes, who can find a new job or, or get out of their at-risk areas, and the people who are most at risk are left behind. And this is the reason that we need a planned retreat. It's why we talk about strategic and managed retreat, not just ad hoc independent, but actually something that has resources and support behind it. That's one way to try to address some of these equity issues, is by providing resources to those who want to relocate but are not able to do so on their own means. But, A.R. Siders, this sounds like a lot of taxpayers' money. If people who have a lot more money than I do decide to buy that oceanfront property, despite pretty common knowledge now about global warming, why should my taxes pay to fix their mistake? This is an excellent question. And I'd love to turn it back around on you. So the, the options right now to adapt to climate change, uh, as they're usually put out, are to resist the water. So think about building a seawall or putting dunes in place. They're to accommodate, like elevating a home, or they're to retreat and relocate. Right now in the United States, your tax dollars, my tax dollars, are going to pay for beach renourishment. We're digging up sand out of the ocean and putting it on a beach. And every time a hurricane comes, it takes that sand away. And then we go pay to put more sand back on that beach. We're paying to build the walls that then crumble or are overtopped, as we see in Sandy and we see in Katrina. We're paying to do all of these things over and over and over again. And that's the trick. We have to pay over and over and over again. With managed retreat, you pay once, and then that person is gone, and there isn't a house there. So you don't, have to re you don't have to move it over and over again. You do it once, and it's done. So is it a no-cost option? No. But can it be cost-effective when compared to the other options that we have? Yes, it can. As you discuss in your paper, a lot of our human problem is our mental attachment to, you know, the way things have always been or the place where families have grown up. And that aspect of retreat almost seems like a problem for something like social psychology. 
How do we deal with those deep-seated feelings that prevent people from going with a positive plan for retreat? This is an emerging area of research. It's an area where we need a lot more work to happen, but it's an area I'm excited about because people are coming up with really innovative ideas. So we see people who have uh, homecoming parties. Portsmouth, North Carolina had a community, and they relocated because it was too at risk from hurricanes and storms. But every other year, they host a homecoming party. So people who used to live on the island, people who are interested in it, want to learn about the history or why they retreated, go back and have a big party so they can see people and try to maintain that sense of connection and sense of place even after they've relocated. There are other options going on, and could we have more art exhibitions? Could we have people who help be able to return to a space? When managed retreat occurs, it's not as though the ocean ceases to exist or you are forever forbidden from returning to the ocean. It's just that you don't live on it anymore. So what can we do to support people having a connection to the ocean that relies more on their recreation and activities or culture and less on their physical residence? Artists are getting involved in this. There's some great theater groups. There's work with cultural historians who look at heritage sites and how those play a role and where people feel a connection to place. It's an area where, as I said, a lot more work needs to be done, but there's also some exciting innovation. And I noticed in your bioinfo that you served as a presidential management fellow with the U.S. Navy. What is a presidential management fellow, and what did you do there? Yeah, so the Presidential Management Fellowship Program is a federal government-wide program to bring graduate students into the government. So people apply who want to be in public service, and they go and spend two years with a particular agency, learning about that agency and how to do management at that agency and what that entails. So I spent two years with the U.S. Navy, with the Chief of Naval Operations Office, and I served in a variety of functions. The Navy's office moved us around a lot, so I worked on things from uh, international research cooperations to counter piracy and spent a little time with NATO. We worked on capacity building in Africa. It was a really wonderful two years. And to cap it all off, I got to work with Task Force Climate Change and with then-Admiral Dave Titley, was the oceanographer of the Navy at the time. And the Navy's work on climate change and climate adaptation is actually what got me interested in working on this area because the military understands that they still have to plan for uncertainty. They're very comfortable with planning for the what-ifs in the future and the probabilities but not certain. That so was a fascinating way to get involved in realizing how important this is for our ports, our coasts, our national security. Yeah, the Navy's going to have to relocate their biggest base on the East Coast and and a lot of other places as well. Now, part of your conclusions in that science article will be difficult to sell to me and to some of our listeners. Like our recent guest, John Englander, you emphasize that retreat is really moving forward towards something more positive. Can you give us that vision a bit? Yeah. So we're asking people to leave and leave their homes, leave the places they know. And the answer is why? And this can be something, so when we say give them a vision to move forward, it can be something simple. Build the new school. Build a new magnet school on the safe side of town so that people have a reason to live close to that. Big private industries. Could you put your headquarters in a safer place and not, say, fill in a wetland and build your headquarters on top of it? If you build in a safer place, your employees will live in a safer place, their commutes will be safer, it's better for your business overall, etc. So it can be something really tangible, like a job or a school, Or it can be giving them a vision. Communities that are relocating as an entire community have come up with how they want their new community to look. Do they want to have big communal spaces? 
everyone's town has those things where you look back and you think, that road is in the wrong place, or that really doesn't make any sense, and you'd fix it if you could start over with a blank slate. Well, in some ways, Manage Retreat gives you that blank slate to imagine what you would want. If you could design your perfect town, (laughs) what would it look like? And here's an opportunity to be creative and try to give people something really positive to look forward to. It could even be an ideal, like uh, Rosetta Elkin at the Harvard Graduate School of Design talks about seashores and national seashores. Could you create a huge national park where people could go hunt and fish but not live? And would that be enough to connect us to the ocean while keeping people not being at risk? So it could be something really practical like a job. It could be something a little bit larger scale like designing a new community. Or it could be something that's much more aspirational. We really want an open, clean beach to leave to our you know, grandchildren or to enjoy ourselves. So retreat is one way to try to get towards those goals. I think when you start focusing on what you're moving towards and why you're doing this and stop focusing on what you're losing, it can help people overcome some of those hurdles. Have you seen places or communities or governments where they're moving towards doing retreat well instead of just leaving it all to panic as the decades unfold? So we do see more and more examples popping up. Determining whether or not they're doing it well is a very difficult problem. We don't have great metrics for what it means to do retreat well. But some examples that I like from the Dutch are considered masters of flood management, and they have a project called Room for the River, where many people, thousands of people were relocated and the land was returned to open space so that when the river floods, it has a place where it can flood and it doesn't go into the city and flood the dense urban area. Instead, it has this rural, open, grassy place where it can flood instead. That one has been at least very successful in terms of large scale, creating open space, using it for flood protection. In the United States, one of my favorite examples is Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin. They actually relocated back in the 70s because they're on the Kickapoo River, and it flooded over and over and over again. And finally, they got funding to relocate their entire business district and to relocate most of the residences. And the reason I think this was a a really interesting example is because they took this idea of moving towards something better. They said, if we're going to relocate, let's relocate in a way that helps us as a community. So they relocated so their business district would be nearer to the highway, so they'd have more traffic, and it would help their economic growth. They invested in, I believe they invested in nursing homes because of their aging population. They put in a new well because it had been contaminated by the floods. And they put in regulations to have their business district be solar-powered. I mean, in the 1970s in Wisconsin, they were going by the nickname the Solar Town because they had these solar power regulations. So they had really revitalized their town with a new sense of serving their businesses, serving individuals. It wasn't about fleeing from the river. It was about building something better. And that, I think, is a really important lesson for other people who are thinking about engaging in retreat to take. Well, we're reaching the end of our time together, but I'm wondering, what will you be working on next? So this is an issue that is complicated enough, thankfully, that I'm going to continue working on it. And this issue exactly that we just discussed, this issue of how do we evaluate managed treat programs? How do we know if they were successful? And what lessons can we learn from what people have already done will be one of my next projects. So I'm continuing to work with my co-authors on this, uh, Catherine Mock and Miyuki Hino, and we'll be working with others on gathering case studies of how people have done this and what innovations they're coming up with. From the Disaster Research Center at the University of Delaware, we've been speaking with Dr. A.R. Siders. You can find links to follow up more on this in my show blog at ecoshock.org. A.R. Siders, Thank you so much for helping us on Radio EcoShock. Thank you. I'm Alex Smith reporting. 
Lay up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock, dot org. We began this program staring down the barrel of possible extinction-level heating here on Earth by the end of this century. That assumes the worst about humanity and that we managed to keep converting fossil fuels into greenhouse gases. But on Friday 20th, there were a lot of other voices heard. I'm told that the largest public protest ever held in Australia showed up to protest inaction on climate change. Young people demanded to have a future. I have given Australia a hard time on this show. It's partly because we love you, mates, but it's also because that country gets lots of signals with extreme heat, coral die-off, and bushfires. Despite undergoing the climate hammer, enough people vote for climate deniers to form government after government in Australia. Those politicians run on a platform of exporting even more natural gas and even more climate-killing coal. How could they? Australia is already the world's largest exporter of both of these fossil fuels, and we all pay the carbon price. Now at least a million Australians, by my unofficial count, say that the coal lobby does not speak for them. They want climate action. Good on you. As you know, there were a lot of climate protests, strikes and actions all over the world that day. None of that reduces our emissions on Friday. But it may be the start, the first step towards mass demand for a sustainable economy and a climate that is livable or at least survivable. The people who stepped up are a breath of hope. Now we need to keep on working to change the ways we live. Life, it is a limited time offer, not just for each of us, but now for our descendants as well. As Jim Jeffries says... I think we can all do better. 